0: Not long ago, I was on another island where my four mothers came from, a little place called Bear Island in Bantry Bay in West Cork. We have retreats there, meditation retreats there, but I also go there for times of solitude and for times of writing. Bear Island is a a mere 17 square kilometers, whereas Singapore is 719. So it's a very small island compared with Singapore. But there's a special quality in an islander's view of the world. Because if you live on an island, you have to be outward-looking. Otherwise, you become insular. So you have to be outward-looking and you have to be adventurous. You have to be able to explore and to move beyond contact with your own coastline and discover things that you haven't yet seen. But an islander also loves coming back to their island and being at home, surrounded by the sea. No human is an island. There's a great poem by John Donne, the English poet. No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind. What we're talking about today is a level of experience, a kind of experience. We can approach it through mindfulness, we can understand it in terms of meditation, but a universal kind of experience that realizes this paradox, That we live on an island, even our little planet is an island floating in the middle of the vast cosmos. We come to love that island that we're living on. But we also need always to remember, to know and to expand our awareness of the universe that we're living in. And I think meditation is the way that we need to do that. I'm going to speak a lot about meditation in the next few minutes. So I would like to begin with a period of meditation so that uh, you know exactly what it is I'm talking about. Better to tell you before rather than afterwards. I'm very appreciative of this opportunity and the relationship with the Mindfulness Institute here for the dialogue because mindfulness has made a tremendous contribution, I think, to general awareness around the world of this contemplative new form of consciousness that is emerging, that is a source of great hope for us, too, in a troubled world. But there is, of course, a distinction between mindfulness and meditation as well as a relationship. And I think that dialogue is going to be very beneficial to all of us. Let me just explain how we meditate and then invite you if you wish to practice it this way, or you practice it, of course, any way you like. I'm not saying this is the, the only way of meditation, but it is, of course, a universal and tried and tested way, present in all our traditions, as I'll say later. Let me just explain to you what it is I mean, and then let's take a few minutes to meditate together. In meditation, we make an inner journey from the mind to a deeper center of consciousness that is universally symbolized as the heart. The heart is the center of the human being. It's where all our different faculties unite in a deep and conscious simplicity. And so meditation itself is simple and it's a process of simplification. Learning to meditate simplifies us. That's why it's not easy. It's easier for children. Children are the easiest people to teach meditation to. If I had nothing else to do, I would just go from school to school meditating with classes of children because they're the most responsive and very rewarding to meditate with. But the process is simple but not easy. It's not easy, of course, because as adults we've built up a lot of baggage, a lot of distraction, a lot of conflict, and many of our psychological wounds in childhood increase as we get older. That's why it's very important, I think, to teach meditation to children, so that we can intervene in a healthy and natural way into the self-healing of the psyche. So we shouldn't think that meditation is going to be easy, but it is simple and immediate. We make this inward journey by taking the attention of our thoughts. Meditation is not what you think. This is a universal wisdom, that we go deeper than the logical, analytical, imaginative stream of consciousness in our minds, and we go to a deeper level of silence. So we could also think of meditation as a way of silence. And the silence, and this is where there's a a real resonance with mindfulness, of course, The silence is the work of attention. As we learn to pay attention in a calm, steady, regular, faithful way, silence becomes more and more potent, potent in bringing about a transformation. How do we lay aside our thoughts? How do we do this work of attention? How do we make this journey from the mind to the heart? In this tradition, we take a single word or a short phrase, which we repeat continually during the time of the meditation. We stay with the same word, the same phrase, meditation word, sacred word, a mantra, however you want to call it. We stay with the same word, not only during the meditation but also from day to day. This allows the mantra then to do its work steadily at deeper and deeper levels of consciousness and produce deeper and deeper integration. Choosing the word therefore is important because as we say the word we say it gently without force we say it attentively we're giving it our full attention we say it simply without evaluating our progress just like a child just say it simply and We say it faithfully, which means that as often as we get distracted, which is on average about every second, (laughs) we drop the thought. You may be solving a problem. You may be fantasizing about something pleasant. You may be chewing over some old anxiety or problem. But whatever the thought, you drop it as soon as you realize that you've started to focus on it, and you return to your word, to your mantra. So let's take a time to meditate now together. Again, some of the basic instructions are the same. First of all, begin with your posture. Take a moment to sit upright with your back straight, your feet on the ground so that you feel stabilized, grounded. Meditation is very grounding, it's not abstract. Relax your shoulders. Put your hands on your lap or on your knees. Relax the muscles of your face, your forehead, your jaw. Pay attention to your breath. This is a little mindful exercise. Pay attention to your breath for a few moments. As you breathe in, you don't have to use any special technique. Just be aware of that flow of breath. Twenty or 30,000 times a day we breathe. As you accept the gift of life, And as you release it again. And then gently introduce your word. The word we recommend generally is the word Maranatha. So if you have your own mantra, of course, stay with that. This is what I would recommend. If you choose this word, say it as four syllables. Maranatha. Maranatha. So we'll meditate for a few minutes now. No man is an island, entire of itself. Everyone is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. My MBA students often say that the meditation In the class time is the best part of the class. (laughs) Which I take as a compliment. So maybe the meditation was the best part of this session. But I'd like to now move from the practice to something more of the theory and its context and the meaning of it. And I'm going to suggest that what we have just done has the potential to change. And if it can change us as individuals, which has certainly changed me, and it can change groups, then there's every reason to believe that it can change the world. Global forces have made us more interdependent and interactive than ever before in human history. We're in an evolutionary moment as we recognize that we are in the Anthropocene age. It's been renamed. It's said to date now from about 1950. This is the age of nuclear tests, plastic pollution, factory chickens, and concrete. These are only a few of the ways in which human beings have become the most dominant form of influence on the planetary environment, together with carbon dioxide, rising level of the sea, mass extinction of the species, and deforestation. Human beings are potentially the most dangerous of the 8.7 million species on the planet. If other species could think as we think, we think, Uh, they are probably twittering to each other. (laughs) And probably they're saying, let's hope these stupid humans destroy themselves as quickly as possible. But others, kinder, may twitter back, let's hope they recover the wisdom they once had, and then we'll all get on together again. The only wisdom is the wisdom of humility. Any good leader knows that. Our topic today is meditation for a more humane world. Not a more human world, we're plenty human enough, but more humane. That means acting to the full capacity of what it means to be human. Acting wisely and compassionately in everything, including our institutions, our professions, our organizations, as well, of course, as in our families and in our personal relationships. Meditation is a universal wisdom, and anyone who meditates soon discovers that it is a way of humility. It humbles us to realize that what we have just done together is so simple and yet Many of us will give up after the first attempt because we feel we failed and no one likes failure. This is why it's so important to teach meditation in a way that overrides this obsession with success and ego achievement, to get beyond the idea of success altogether in meditation. But that is a humbling thing for us to do. It's wisdom and humility is wisdom Because it is a clear, calm, compassionate awareness of our self within the real. The real as it is. Not as an imagined or projected context that we find ourselves in. We are in this together. We're in this global evolutionary moment together. We have to see it as full of opportunity as well as of danger. We have to see beyond the sensationalism and the distortions of the media news. We have to look at it, look at what is happening as well informed as we can be in the post-truth age with clarity. We must learn to see ourselves and all our social, economic, cultural, and political interactions with that global perspective And that's the global perspective that has entered into the modern mind through the way that the astronauts were blessed when they looked down on this small blue planet spinning around in space and wondered at its beauty and its grace and its unity. We haven't brought this self-awareness down to earth yet, quite obviously. And our seminar today is a small but authentic and hopeful part of a growing global movement, which through the teaching and practice of meditation is bringing it down to earth and bringing it back from the great wisdom traditions that we've lost, leading us back to the wisdom of humility so that we can share and celebrate the amazing, but very brief wonder of our short span of days on this planet, instead of squandering them in short-term greed, violence, ethnic conflict, and religious fundamentalism. For many people today, meditation is acceptable because it is blessed by science, which is fine. Science is a great resource and a great source of knowledge. It's not the only one, not even the major source of knowledge, but it is immensely important to us. And it means a lot. Meditation has, up to a point, the seal of approval. We're doing research projects with the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland, and the doctors there involved in the research we're doing, it says this is the only field of research in medical science that shows no negative side effects. (laughs) But this scientific research into meditation began late. 1931 was the first recorded scientific study of meditation. Late, if you consider that meditation has been part of the human experience since the dawn of consciousness, 50,000 years ago, the Australian Aborigines practiced and lived the wisdom that one of their tribes called Didiri. This is a contemplative wisdom, the practice of sitting quietly, of waiting and listening, not analyzing and not increasing our anxiety, our fear, or our greed. These are some words from a Miriam Rose Ungermere Bauman, a contemporary Aboriginal Christian sage who has been doing amazing work in her life of bringing this Aboriginal wisdom into contemporary Australian culture. She says, I can find my peace in this silent awareness. I can find my peace in this silent awareness. There is no need of words. A big part of didiri is listening. After many thousands of years of very low level change or almost imperceptible change, this prehistoric, preliterate wisdom suddenly surged into a new level of consciousness in what the scholars call the axial age. This was a an amazing evolutionary moment extending over a few hundred years, about half a millennium before Christ. This was the age of Lao Tzu and Confucius, the age of the Buddha, of Zoroaster, the age of the Hebrew prophets, the age of uh, Socrates and Plato, and it was the flowering of the Vedic tradition in the late Upanishads. An incredible period of human consciousness flowering. And what we know as major religions today took shape in this period through the wisdom of contemplation because this was the defining characteristic of the Axial Age, a new way of human beings knowing themselves. And this flowered simultaneously in these many different cultures. It took different expressions, but the fundamental awakening was the same this evolutionary moment is still unfolding. Much of our religion today remains primitive, magical, superstitious, egocentric, at the institutional and at the individual level. But at the core of each of these wisdom traditions is a silent time bomb of contemplation. And we are hearing its ticking today as we have never heard it before. If you watch a Hollywood disaster movie, where the world is saved in the end from aliens, meteorites, or ecological disaster by an individual, always an American hero, of course, (laughs) because it's made in Hollywood. But if you look at these very sensational Uh, films, you, you can glimpse a deep concern, deep anxiety, of the time that we're living in, a sense of crisis and a desperate hope for a way out. But also, we can see the naivety and the superficiality of how we communicate this global crisis to each other, how it becomes present in the critical or not so critical thinking of a mass audience. How do we communicate this to our children, let alone our voters? Sadly, many people and many Americans believe the Messiah must be an American. (laughs) And even worse, some think that they have just elected him. (laughs) Now, we do need to raise collective consciousness of this crisis, but not to manipulate it, not to use it for our own short-term advantage, our political advantage. It's easy to win votes on fear or prejudice, anxiety, not to turn it into another short-term advantage for a specialist group. So how do we do this? Well, wisdom. I don't think there's any other way. It says in the Book of Wisdom, the hope for the salvation of the world lies in the greatest number of wise people. Unfortunately, or maybe not, it doesn't say how many wise people we need. Maybe this room would be enough, you know? If we were all wise and we all went out and lived that wisdom, we could probably change the world. Wisdom is free. You can't buy it. It cannot be commodified. It cannot be packaged. And it cannot be patented by one particular group or interest group. But although wisdom is free, it doesn't come cheap. There's a great line in Mother Julian of Norwich where she says, Simplicity, it comes freely, but it costs everything. A condition of complete simplicity demanding not less than everything. Well, that's what we were doing in those ten or so minutes of meditation. We were giving everything. And the result of that giving of everything is simplicity, humility, and wisdom. Wisdom doesn't come cheap, but it is freely available. And it is not purely religious. We live in a secular age. Thank God we live in a secular age. We don't want to live under ISIS or under a medieval papacy. Meister Eckhart, one of the great Christian mystics said, I pray to God to rid me of God. Seems a bit shocking to many conventional religious people, but it's exactly the truth discovered in the Axial Age and the truth at the heart of the gospel as well. Religion without an awakened contemplative dimension is itself one of the greatest dangers we can invent for ourselves. So we cannot turn wisdom into another package, or program, or religious uh, ideology. And if we try, it will only become another lost leader. It will only become another false wisdom, another commodity for sale. Lao Tzu said, there is no worse calamity than the unrestrained increase of needs. Interesting reflection for economists today. There is no worse calamity than the unrestrained increase of needs. If we apply wisdom to the problems that we face at all the levels at which we face them today, wisdom will simplify the complexity of the problems we're dealing with. I'm not saying that meditation solves all our problems. It would be great if it did. Then you could package it, patent it, and turn it into a pill. But meditation doesn't solve all your problems, but it does transform the way you see them, the way you approach them, the way you collaborate with other people on this little blue planet to deal with them. And we don't solve them forever. We solve one set of problems and another set will come into existence. So we need wisdom as a continuous presence, not just as a short-term a course, or a short-term quick fix. So let's look at what wisdom costs by looking at this in a more personal level. In the end, wisdom enters the world through people. It doesn't descend from institutions or demagogues. Leaders can create the environment in which wisdom emerges, but leaders can't give wisdom wisdom has to arise. Wisdom can see the whole picture and can see how things relate to each other across many specialized areas. One of the causes of our chronic and self-destructive complexity today in many of our professions and institutions is over-specialization. Speak to anyone in a hospital. There won't be long before you have a specialist for the left ear and another for the right ear. <laughs> but wisdom also appreciates what William Blake called the holiness of minute particulars. We need to see the whole picture, but never forget that the details are holy as well. Let me tell you a, a story from the Gospel of Luke which is a parable of modern consciousness. And then I'll uh, refer to a contemporary uh, neurological study, which I think expresses the same idea in contemporary terms. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he stops at the house of two sisters who are friends of his, Martha and Mary. We're told that Martha sees him coming, And she comes out of the house to greet him. Mary, her sister, sits at his feet and stays there listening to his words. So we can see a distinction in this few words between the two sisters. Martha, the active, proactive one, she sees him coming down the road, she runs out of the house, greets him. and and when he comes in, Mary just sits at his feet, quietly listening to what he's saying. Then we're told that Martha becomes distracted by her many tasks. That's all it says. It doesn't say why she becomes distracted, it doesn't say what her tasks are, but you could imagine that she wants to put on a nice meal for Jesus and his unexpected 12 guests. Then the microwave breaks down. And she discovers she doesn't have any sort of thing to make bread with. We live in an age of chronic distraction. Our level of attention is now down to eight seconds, so we're told, which is getting perilously close to the attention span of a goldfish, (laughs) which is 10 seconds. So Martha becomes distracted. And then she comes into the room, and she says to Jesus, Lord, don't you see I'm doing all this work by myself? Tell her to give me a hand. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Have you ever felt like that? It's all on you. Nobody's helping you. What is she showing the symptoms of? The modern disease, every culture in the world, stress, yeah. Martha's probably a very active person in heaven, so we should give her another job. We should make her the patron saint of stress, (laughs) because we know that stress is the great destabilizer, both of individuals and of organizations. Organizations spend millions, maybe more, on dealing with stress. National health systems around the world are more and more acutely conscious of stress as, as a primary drain on their resources. So she's showing all the symptoms of stress. So we didn't invent stress, but we certainly specialized in it. And how does Jesus respond? Martha, Martha, he says in a friendly way. He calls her back to herself. That's the first thing we have to do when we're stressed out is to come back to ourselves. That's what meditation is about. Simply reconnecting to your own center. Martha, Martha, you are worrying and anxious about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. And then he says, Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken away from her. That's the end of the story. So we don't know how Martha reacted. (laughs) The reason is, is that we are the end of the story, how we interpret it. That's that's that kind of story, that kind of parable. I think it would be very reasonable to be a little bit anxious about what Jesus says. Why is he defending Mary, who's just been sitting there doing nothing, listening to his interesting talk, and uh, Martha's been doing all the work, and she's got stressed out, She gets the blame and Mary gets the credit. But I don't think that's what it means. At the beginning, we see the distinction between the personality types, the the contemplative and the active, the active and the, the quieter type of personality. We actually have both of these. And the second part of the story, where he says Mary has chosen the better part, reflects the unity of the human being and that Martha and Mary are the two sides of the human person. And the one thing necessary must be that they live together peacefully in the same house, not blaming each other, but collaborating and working together. Now, a recent study by Ian McGilchrist, a British psychiatrist and neurologist, into the way the two hemispheres of the brain work together. So he was speaking at our center in London recently, but he has no religious or overtly spiritual point of view. But I think what he says is of real relevance. Brain research is his subject, but it's not reductionistic. We know that neural circuitry lights up when you fall in love. But the lighting up of the neural circuitry isn't love. We have two hemispheres, Martha and Mary. Both of them are involved in every, pretty well everything we do, in language, in vision, in spatial imagery, in reason and emotion. The best model for understanding the human is not mechanistic, but personal. There's a personal relationship here. And matter is just as hard to explain as consciousness. Birds and animals have a divided brain. One consciousness cannot do two kinds of attention simultaneously, so we need two hemispheres. That's why evolution has wisely allowed the two hemispheres to remain separate. The human is defined by the quality of our attention. Machines, computers, do tasks but they don't pay attention. If you have a problem, you want to sit with your friend and you want your friend to listen to what you're saying, to give you attention. And no computer program is going to do that. Simone Weil understood attention is the essence of both prayer and compassion. But there is a world of difference between the two kinds of of attention that these two hemispheres give. The left hemisphere narrows attention and looks for certainty. And certainty, as we know, is an illusion. It is about fixity. And we also know that fixity is an illusion as well. Things don't stay the same. But they are useful fictions. We use these... Perceptions in order to make certain decisions and programs. The left hemisphere of the brain manipulates the world. It doesn't understand it, but it manipulates it. It represents the world to us. It generalizes, it creates an abstraction, it makes the world into a map. And it defends its own point of view to the death. It cannot say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. It produces mediocrity. Compare that with the way the right hemisphere operates. The right hemisphere is in the flow of reality. Reality is constantly flowing. It is comprehensive and inclusive. It is open to possibility. It recognizes change is the nature of reality. It specializes in new experience and sends this new data to the left hemisphere which processes it and then should send it back to the right hemisphere. So they work together. But very clearly we now can see that Mary has chosen the better part because the right hemisphere, which is Mary, the contemplative if you like, the right hemisphere is actually in touch with reality as it happens now, much more than the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere is dealing with diagrams, with systems, with reports, you know, which take 18 months to produce and are out of date as soon as they land on the person's desk. So it's the right hemisphere that's actually in touch, and not surprisingly then, deductive logic and mathematics have their origin in the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere is true to experience. It's not dismissive of what doesn't fit. And the result is excellence. There's an escalating imbalance in our world between these two ways of attention. We need both, but they need to work together. But Mary has chosen the better part. Being comes before doing. Being in the flow is more realistic than looking at a report. Attention, reality, is what we pay attention to. The way we pay attention creates the world we live in. The price of imbalance is enormous, and it has brought us to our present crisis. Madness, and you can't read the news today without thinking, what a mad world we're living in. Madness is a slavish following of procedures and rules, or a desperate attempt just to create chaos in order to reset the machine. But life does not follow the logic of a machine. Pascal said, the ultimate achievement of reason is to see that there is an infinity of things that transcend it. What is the one thing necessary? Surely it's to balance these two dimensions of the human. And this balancing is a continuous process. We get unbalanced so quickly, within minutes. I once asked great violinist Yehudi Menuhin, I said, do you think that listening to a great work of art, like the B minor mass or Beethoven violin concerto, do you think that that makes people better? And he thought about it for a while and he said, no. <laughs> but he said, you're less likely to do something terrible within an hour or two of listening to it. <laughs> Which is perhaps why Confucius said that the wise person listens to four hours of music a day. Balancing is a continuous process. We get unbalanced so quickly that we need a practice integrated into daily life. In fact, twice a day into daily life. And meditation is, I think, the simplest and most universal practice that resets us as soon as we go off track. It's a life skill, of course, but not just a technique. It's a discipline. Meditation is measured not only by its benefits, cardiovascular, psychological, the way it helps with depression to relieve the stress, to boost the immune system, and to deal with anxiety attacks, improve relationships, and so on. It's not only measured by these measurable benefits, but as consciousness itself grows in self-awareness through its humane fruits, the fruits of meditation, that is where we see the real value of meditation at a humane, human level. And the greatest of these fruits is love. A few years ago, one of the National Health uh, Trusts in Britain, I think it was the North Staffordshire Trust, had a tremendous scandal and crisis. People were dying unnecessarily, and there was a real breakdown in the system. They rushed in uh, experts, and they brought in the man who had done the Obama Healthcare, He reported eventually to, did a long report with something like 255 recommendations, and then he met David Cameron, the Prime Minister of the time, and uh, David Cameron maybe hadn't read the report. Anyway, he said to him, could you sum it up for me in a few words? What went wrong? And he replied, a lack of love. Our community has been bringing the fruits of this wisdom of meditation into the non-religious world for some time. As many of you will know, Coxong uh, uh, and I had the, the gift of being able to introduce meditation in this way to Li Kuan Yu, who told us at the outset that he was not uh, a religious or a spiritual person. And we have learned over time, I think, how to present this as a wisdom rooted in our own faith tradition, Meditation, for me, is prayer, and it deepens my personal union with Christ, but it is also pure experience. It can therefore be taught and practiced independently of any one belief system, but without rejecting or being frightened of any belief system. It has the power, therefore, to open the common ground of our humanity across cultures, religions, beliefs, the main areas of our life today in the modern world reflect a massive left brain, Martha, bias, and imbalance. No wonder they're all so characterized by stress, by conflict, and by increasing dysfunction. We've been introducing meditation into a number of areas over the years. Education, as I said earlier. Teaching meditation to young children is the easiest thing to do and perhaps maybe the most useful thing that we can do. Education is about leading out of the individual the humane gifts that we possess. But very often today in the institutionalization of education, it's become more concerned with giving economic-based qualifications education isn't about getting qualifications education understood in the light of meditation of a rebalanced tension makes us ask the question what is knowledge for what is it about how does it serve the human project as i mentioned also we're introducing meditation to doctors and healthcare professionals it's a profession which is in crisis. Globally it has 30 percent waste, 50 percent non-compliance with medication uh, given out by prescription. A very high level of burnout among the professionals and depersonalization of the relationship with the patients. Often it's hijacked by profiteers and patients, the more procedures they are put through, uh, feel increasingly dissatisfied. Again, Meditation makes us ask, what is health? What does health really mean? Can you give health? In business and finance, we've experienced over the last short period of time the fantasy of economic predictability, economic and political unpredictability. We've seen the disasters created by a domination of profit motive, self-serving leaders and boards, unethical behavior institutionalized injustice, a growing gap between rich and poor, half of the world's wealth in the hands of 1% of the population, a recipe for the Trump era, for Brexit, and throughout the Western world, especially waves of new right-wing populism. There are good leaders, good economists, and good politicians But the overwhelming trend is towards an imbalance. If we restore that balance to economics and to politics, we will ask the question, what does work really mean? What is work for? And science. We had a meditatio seminar recently on science, not on the science of meditation, but how meditation can recover pure research put on by scientists who feel controlled by funders and governments and corporations that is undermining the integrity of pure research. So strangely enough I think through addressing the needs of science today we will ask the question what is contemplation? Because the great scientists, the great research comes out of contemplation. And peace and justice. So often these issues of peace and justice human rights are reduced to platitudes and political slogans but if we can restore this integrated and balanced attention to our world we will be able to ask what is the heart what is at the heart of all human relationship because that's the source of peace and justice So these institutions and professions reflect common symptoms of an imbalance of consciousness, of simple, down-to-earth, common sense and wisdom. Left-brain solutions to this crisis alone won't work. They will only make things worse. More of the same will make them worse. Introducing meditation to those in leadership and to those they serve, is the single most valuable thing we can do today. And this requires, of course, leaders who meditate.